Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For nearly 20 years, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has operated a data gathering site. It's called the National Healthcare Safety Network. In 2020, CDC made it mandatory for nursing homes to report COVID cases. Suddenly, thousands of nursing homes had to enroll in the network. It didn't go well. Things have improved since then. We get the latest from Health and Human Services Assistant Regional Inspector General Marshall Allen. Mr. Allen, good to have you with us. Great to be here, Tom. Thank you. And tell us about this network and what really happened when they made it mandatory for nursing homes to report health data. Well, the CDC has what's called the National Healthcare Safety Network, and NHSN is the acronym for it. It's a data gathering tool to track healthcare acquired infections, and it's been typically used more for hospitals. But when the pandemic hit, CMS made it mandatory for nursing homes to report to NHSN, and they had to report all types of COVID data. So they had to report suspected COVID cases, total COVID deaths, PPE, hand hygiene, ventilator capacity, all types of information about COVID now had to be gathered. And this was in May of 2020 when this requirement went into place. And I know your listeners will remember that was the absolute heat of the pandemic. I mean, this was a real crisis moment. And so this previously voluntary reporting for nursing homes now became mandatory and CDC had a massive challenge on its hand. How do you enroll thousands of nursing homes in a matter of weeks to accurately gather and report this really crucial information. Well, it sounds like it must be, frankly, a primitive system because online enrollment for applications now is a part of American life, pretty widespread. And there are sites that, you know, 10,000 people sign up an hour and get an account. What was the difficulty? Yeah, I could see why you'd say that, but it's actually a pretty complicated system. And then also don't underestimate the stress that the nursing homes were under at this time. Nursing homes are notoriously short-staffed and trying to juggle a lot of different things at the moment. And don't forget, COVID was really unknown at this time. So you have these nursing homes where they have very high turnover, not a lot of trained staff having to create a login for this system. And I know it should seem real simple, but process was a little convoluted. Like specifically, at one point in the process, they had to upgrade their security access. And they actually had to send in some actual like hard copy documentation to verify their identities because they didn't have a quick access kind of immediate identity kind of thing built into the system. So it was something that had to happen really fast under under a huge amount of stress with the nursing homes not being well-trained or well-staffed. Right. So it's partly a systemic issue with the way nursing homes are organized and the kind of staffing they have, but it also sounds like there was a little bit of a process issue that CDC needed to fine-tune. Yes, definitely. And so they sent out a lot of guidance. Um, They held a lot of webinars. But remember, this all happened in a matter of weeks. And so they had to add to the system, too. They had to create in the NHN system the capacity to gather all this data about COVID that had not previously been gathered before. And so they did webinars. They did everything they could to get people enrolled. But they had about 12,000 nursing homes enrolled, like really all at once. And so there were a lot of challenges with the enrollment. Getting people logged in was a challenge. Having people understand the guidance 
guidance was a challenge. And one of the biggest challenges was at the help desk. I mean, you can imagine the help desk for NHSN had never seen anything like this before. And suddenly they have thousands of nursing homes needing assistance. And the way the help desk was created, it did not have any phone assistance or live chat ability. It was all email. And so, you know, you have nuanced questions about the nursing home might have needed to know, what do I need to report? How do I need to report it? How do I get logged in? I forgot my password. I mean, you can imagine all these calls to the help desk, thousands of them at once. And so it created a massive backlog because they didn't have uh, live support. It just made it really difficult to get these things answered over email. And did this enrollment actually get accomplished in time to inform understanding of COVID in nursing homes? It did. And I mean, that's pretty remarkable. You know, 12,000 nursing homes got got enrolled rapidly. I mean, there were backlogs, there were hassles, there were frustrations, but they did get enrolled. They did uh, report the data. One one other thing that we found, and this went into our recommendations, was um, all the data reported to NHSN is self-reported data. And there are some QA checks done on the data, but we asked nursing homes what their confidence was. We did a survey of about 200 nursing homes, and we also did interviews with nursing homes. And we asked them what their confidence was about the completeness and the accuracy of the data that they were reporting in HSN. And about one in four said they did not have confidence in the completeness and accuracy of the data. And so one of our recommendations to CDC was to bump up their QA checks, you know, give better guidance and documentation on the front end, and then also check the data on the back end, you know, have a QA process in place so that you can really verify that the data that you're gathering is really accurate. We're speaking with Marshall Allen. He's Assistant Regional Inspector General at Health and Human Services. And now that we are here in 2024, you did this work, this inspection of this system in late 23. Why now? Yeah, NHSN has changed a lot. Um, and we even asked the nursing homes whether things had improved since the height of the pandemic, and they had improved, but they still had challenges even when we were doing our data gathering. This was uh, two years after the, the height of the pandemic when we were talking to them. They still had challenges with the reporting, with the different different aspects of the system. And the, the reporting has been reduced now. They're still gathering vaccine data from the nursing homes. But the other thing CDC is talking about doing is expanding the use of NHSN. And so as they look forward to expanding the use of it as they continue to gather this vaccine data, it's important that they take these steps, you know, that we recommended. Another thing we recommended is that they give some live support, whether it's chat or telephone support on their help desk, just so that the users don't get frustrated when they're trying to get that guidance. And what is the current population of reporting entities now on the network? I think it's about 15,000 nursing homes reporting. Um, I don't know the number of hospitals that was outside the scope of what we looked at. I know they added 12,000, and I believe they had about 3,000 who were already voluntarily enrolled before the pandemic. So fair to guess there's tens, maybe 20s of thousands of hospitals that had already been reporting for some time. Yeah, there are fewer hospitals than nursing homes, so there probably aren't that many. But yeah, hospitals have been reporting to NHSN for years, and they report things like, you know, C. diff infections, MRSA infections, central line infections, all that type of data is really important. But another thing with the quality improvement, I mean, the hospitals were outside the scope of what we're doing, but the hope is that if they could improve the QA checks for the nursing homes, that maybe that would also affect the QA checks for the hospital data too. And maybe they could have hospitals that are good at this deputized to teach the new entities how to, how to get into the system and how to use it. 
Definitely. And I think one of the challenges for the nursing homes is the turnover rates. You know, the staffing is at a crisis level in nursing homes right now. And a big part of that is just turnover of the staff. And that was something we found with everyone we talked to. You can train one person to be the the key point person for the NHSN reporting, but then that person might leave. (laughs) And then you have to train someone new. And so the turnover in nursing homes is just a real challenge for keeping this system up to date. And you said in the report that the COVID reporting is about to expire, that requirement for the nursing homes. And then you told me that there is going to be an expansion of entities reporting. So what is next for the network? Well, we don't know um, for sure what that'll be. And the CDC officials didn't tell us what that would be. But the vaccine data is still, COVID-19 vaccine data is still required to be reported to NHSN by nursing homes. And then they have talked about expanding it, but they weren't specific about what that would look like. Because if hospitals routinely report some of these infections and so forth, that kind of stuff happens in nursing homes all the time. Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of ways NHSN could be used. It's a really valuable tool. What other recommendations did you have and what was CDC's reaction so far? Well, so we had three recommendations. The first one was to add some live chat, live support to the help desk, a phone person or someone on live chat, just so specific questions could be answered in real time. They partially concurred with that. You know, they're they're required to concur or non-concur on this one. They partially concurred. They said that they have been making a lot of improvements and we responded to that. Well, we still think, you know, that you should add the live support. And then the other two were related to the quality of the data. One recommendation was to improve the guidance that they were providing to people as they enrolled. CDC concurred with that. And then the other one they concurred with was improving the quality assurance process so that they could be confident that the data that's being reported is complete and accurate. Marshall Allen is Assistant Regional Inspector General at the Health and Human Services Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake and what is that and um, I think most important what did you take away from that what did you learn from that well I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders we have to learn to recognize our mistakes admit our mistakes 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.